Hello, Mr. McGannon. It is Hello, so nice to have you. It is great to be with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. I'm really happy to have you here. Um, uh, we, we, I have lots of questions. Um, I'm very excited about the topic of uh, intelligent disobedience because it's, um, I felt, you know, throughout my career, I felt very disobedient. So I think it applies to me pretty well. <laughs> Good. I have been too. Most of the time it's been intelligent, but I've had my moments when it isn't. So it's good to learn from those. So you, you've done, you've done, you've been a LinkedIn learning instructor. You've written a book. Uh, do you, you have a, a copy of that? I sure do. Intelligent, intelligent disobedience. disobedience, the difference between good and great leaders. Yes. I, um, I've worked with a number of, I, yeah, I worked with a number of people and I found the best leaders that I've worked with are those that know when to bake or bend the rules. I mean, a good business process will work 98% of the time, a good one. The question is what you do during the other two when whatever's happening or whatever the circumstance that that process is intended to produce as an outcome isn't going to happen. What do you do then? And I think the best leaders know the best way themselves or to lead their teams to bend the rules, break the rules, do things different to get the outcome that those processes uh, were intended to produce, or in some instances, get a better outcome upon which you can then build new processes for your business. Right, right. And then the, 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 there was this, sorry, there's so many things that I want to talk about, but I wanted to first ask uh, a bit about your background uh, because I, I know that you, you're currently working with something called curated uh, culture and as well you're working yes. with something called Gwyn Pennington. So if you can just give us a bit of background on, onto these two. Uh. Sure, sure. Um, first of all, I've worked for IBM for 18 years. So, you know, very conservative sort of a, a company um, and, and sort of learned about intelligent disobedience even within that context. Uh, and then started my own project management training consulting business, which I sold about four years ago. I then started another business called Intelligent Disobedience, which is associated with the writing of the book. And, and from there, I also do some work with some other organizations that I feel um, are really striving to develop leaders and reduce toxicity in the corporate environment. And, and working with Gwen Pennington, who I've known for 10 years, who does a lot of fabulous work and a leadership model um, we call compassion ship. So taking compassion into a leadership model uh, and then curated culture is, is looking at um, different ways in which you could develop culture within the organization that ultimately suits the mission of the organization, the people of the organization, but also what it is that, that you're intending to present yourself to the marketplace. So we're not saying a culture is the right culture. In fact, the whole idea of curated cultures like the collection, we co collect and, and try to understand different cultures that we could lay out and discuss with people and then ultimately help them look at their own point of departure and what their point of arrival should be for a, a more productive, more peaceful, less toxic um, culture uh, and then help them on the steps that they need to go through to get there. And that's that's not that's not easy. I mean, you have these traditional businesses that tend to go down the "I told you to do this, so do it," you know. And uh, and I think that that's that's very much along the lines of of uh, what you've written, what you what, what you've consulted on. It is it is very much a subjective exercise. 
I mean, culture and, and what it should be and, and why we do curated culture and give a number of options is part of that. But then the whole idea of intelligent disobedience is also falls into that as well. What's intelligent disobedience in one organization isn't necessarily in another. So to give you an example and use maybe two ends of the continuum, um, if I am managing, let's say, the electric um, grid in a major city, right? I don't want to make changes willy-nilly on the fly, try things and see what happens. I mean, I may take the power down at a hospital. So I have to plan. I have to be very, very diligent. You may have to do some modeling, that sort of thing, before you're going to make a change to an electric power grid. If you're in Google <laughs> and you can change the parameters of your search engine five times a day to see what happens, an entirely different environment in which you can engage in intelligent disobedience when you take those two things, right? So the concept is there, but how you apply the concept is very subjective to the environment you're in. And, and from an individual standpoint, where you sit in the organization, what your own risk appetite might be also comes into play. So uh, I, I don't ever claim to be an expert in intelligent, in, in intelligent disobedience, by the way. I'm a story collector and a story sharer about this concept as a tool in which we can get better outcomes. And so I love having conversations like this and having you ask me questions because I might learn from this as well. Well, I, I'm, I'm already starting to pick up on a couple of things, but there was a, there was a, a YouTube video that you recently did uh, speaking of stories, uh, that, that and this story really it, 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 it clicked and it made intelligent disobedience very clear for me. Uh, it's the story about uh, Chap the dog, the seeing eye dog. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, and it's how I learned the phrase intelligent disobedience, uh, which comes from the world of seeing eye dog. You spend 18 months training a seeing eye dog to behave, and the next 12 to 18 months teaching it when and how not to behave. So if you picture you know, you're at, you're at a street corner and, and you have your seeing eye dog uh, who's on a rigid harness and you hear like a many signals are in major cities around the world right now have an audible tone associated with walk and don't walk, right? Uh, and you hear the tone turn to walk and you command the dog to go forward. Well, an electric car that's very quiet may be coming around the corner or have pulled away from the curb um, and the dog will disobey its master and stop, all right? as a means of you know, preventing them from the danger of the car, but ultimately getting them to the goal they want to get to, which is getting to the other side of the street safely. So that's the concept of intelligent disobedience. Uh, and, and Chap was a dog that, that actually prevented uh, his master from going onto an elevator, which had failed, because the elevator floor was maybe 30 centimeters below the floor that we were standing on. Um, and what I saw that dog do was amazing. I had hardly figured out what it is that was going on. And Chap the dog jumped, literally jumped 90 degrees and created a hurdle around in front of which his master could not move. Um, and and I, I talked to his master about what it is that was happening and said, uh, that was really amazing. And, and that, that dog is pretty incredible of, of how quickly he reacted to the situation. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, Chap is the most obedient dog I've ever had. But when he disobeys me, you can bet I'm going to obey him. Because wow. he has information I don't have. He has information I don't have. Take that concept and put it into the business world. 
where you have managers that aren't on the coal face of what it is that's going on. They're not in the day-to-day -day business. They have information that employees don't have based on, you know, maybe some strategy, different directions, status with customers, whatever the case may be. But by the same token, the people that report to a manager are going to have a different perspective on the business, the processes, how they're working, how they're not working, what the tone is from, from customers, if they're in general conversation, like at a service desk or something like that, there's information to be shared to create better outcomes. Uh, and intelligent disobedience, I think, is a way to bring that to bear. It's not something you're going to do every day. It's going to be for a certain outcome that isn't going to be um, realized by normal means. By the way, Leith, there is an opposite to intelligent disobedience. I don't know if you saw that in the YouTube because I don't think I mentioned it. The opposite of intelligent disobedience is malicious obedience. Oh. And it sounds, you can hear it. It sounds like this. Okay, Leith, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. And you follow the process literally knowing that the whatever it is is going to go right off the end of the cliff. <laughs> I think, right? I think everyone has been guilty anyway. of doing at some point. <laughs> it happens. Uh, it but, happens. but this actually, you know, the, the, the flow of information back and forth reminded me that, you know, the last time we talked, you mentioned that a general had actually called you from the U.S. Army. One of generals, a colonel. A colonel. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting story as well, because I, I have done and I've delivered intelligent disobedience workshops for the U.S. Army Special Forces, so the Green Berets, in their training school. And, and when uh, Colonel Tulin called me about this and said he'd want me to do workshop, potentially look at doing workshops for him, I was really confused, <laughs> to be honest with you. I said, wait a minute, intelligence disobedience in the armed forces and you know, you teach people to obey orders. And he said, that's exactly the problem. He said, in special forces, we're putting people into, we're putting our troops into, well, special, unusual situations. It's not normal warfare. And normally they have intelligence. You know, we, we give them what it is we think the scene is. Um, and, and what they're going to run into. And often it's slightly off. Sometimes there's bits of it that are right and bits of it that are wrong. And what we need these special people, these really highly trained troops to do, is obey the orders we should have given them if we knew what they knew when they get on the ground. It is a almost a perfect parallel to the seeing eye dog concept, right? Don't follow my orders. Follow the orders we should have given you. But the issue is, is that the people who go into the armed forces are, are so drilled on um, following orders that the idea of doing that, even the vocabulary around which to describe it, is something that they don't have. And it's created suboptimal outcomes and maybe led to other things like PTSD um, that they're concerned about. So uh, we were working with the troops to... to, to grasp this concept of intelligent disobedience, try to create a vocabulary around it so they can have some discussions of the context under which the orders were given and what the intent was, and to focus on the intent, not necessarily the process, because the process may change once they get on the ground. Right, and you see this across many organizations, the same problem like you said earlier. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's funny enough, it's a pandemic. <laughs> It is funny, and it, you're right. You're right, and it's been with us much longer than COVID, I'm afraid. Uh, and and in some cases, 
it's just a weakness in the manager's part that they have to know everything and they feel uncomfortable when they don't. Um, it may be because the nature of the business is such that you you really do have to follow process or you believe you have to follow process. And let me tell you what I mean by believe you have to follow process. Um, I've done a lot of work with banks uh, and in financial industry, and there's a lot of reporting that banks need to produce, um, particularly investment banking and that sort of thing as to, you know, what they're doing to protect clients' money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Prevent money laundering, that sort of thing. So you have to produce a lot of reports. In most cases, the process by which you go through to produce that report is not regulated. It's just the report that's regulated. You could use, you know, three PhDs or 87 chimpanzees to, to produce the report. It doesn't matter. It's just if the report's accurate, you're fine. But a lot of organizations will somehow elevate the whole process of creating the report as being regulatory, which makes it difficult to apply intelligent disobedience to it. But it, you can. And, and it's sometimes a matter of just picking apart the, the, the process and the outcome and understanding what's regulated and what's not. And they're determining what space you've got for intelligent disobedience. But it takes a lot of homework. You can't do that wrong. If you're in the pharmaceutical industry developing vaccines, speaking about COVID, right, that process is highly regulated as well as the output in the reports. So you don't, it wouldn't be intelligent disobedience to take shortcuts in that or to do something different. But that's not often the case. It is in some instances, but not often. One thing you just mentioned was actually uh, a very sensitive uh, topic, in, in my opinion, is, is knowing when your team is enacting intelligent disobedience, uh, how, how, how do you how would you recommend a manager uh, gives that faith and trust in the team to go against what he said or she said? In steps. <laughs> Let's start there. It's not binary. It's not binary. It's like, okay, here you go. You know, you've got free reign now. Um, there's actually in the book, one of the chapters I have in the book is actually a growth path that's just specifically geared towards giving people some leeway with intelligent disobedience. All right, so it starts with, you can vary steps in a process, but we don't want you to start a new process altogether. And it might be you can vary step one, three, five, and seven, but don't vary step eight, right? Um, and then you get a little more leeway to vary the process. And then you get a little leeway to break the process altogether in certain circumstances. Or, you know, you may have, you may your, your financial delegation may be X, but you can go X plus 15% if you to, to execute a task. If you see a special circumstance, you don't need to ask my permission, but you need to tell me you did it and give me the rationale thereafter. And then I, as the leader, the manager can work with you on whether that was the right thing or not and sort of adjust your thinking. So over time, your acts of intelligent disobedience get more and more sound because there's always dialogue between the manager and their employee around those actions, right? So that's just one sort of a stream of thought that says, you know, it's something that um, you can regulate, put boundaries on, and then slowly widen those boundaries as you see those decisions coming back being sound and things that you as a leader would have done yourself, right? Their thought processes there. 
Um, but then there's some other people that, you know, are very, very good employees, but they absolutely need those rules. I mean, very kind, giving people who will give away the store <laughs> because, you know, they're very empathetic or very compassionate about people. And, and it's like, all right, well, we'll you know, I, 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 I'm not supposed to give you that, but I will. And they're doing it in what they think is really a good thing to do, but their personality and disposition doesn't have the right balance of long-term business impact of doing something like that. So um, I, I don't endorse intelligent disobedience being given out, you know, like bits of chewing gum or something to everybody, <laughs> you know, here's candy or a donut at lunch or whatever the case may be, or for a break. Um, I think you have to be very mindful of the people's personalities and then bring them along. It's not just turn the switch on and they can engage in intelligent disobedience. Right. They really need to understand the business from the inside and out or whatever they're doing. If it's not a business, maybe exactly. it's a military unit. They need to really exactly. understand every single detail for them to make that sound judgment. And, and I think exactly. another thing that, you, that it seems to be a common thread here is communication flow. Like it's it's okay to disobey as long as you're informing and keeping that open communication. This is a fascinating topic, Leif. We could talk about this for an hour, and I always have a grin on my face because I do a presentation called "The Rules for Breaking the Rules." <laughs> right? These are the rules for breaking the rules in intelligent disobedience, and and one of them is you don't do this in stealth. When you've engaged in an act of intelligent disobedience, you tell people you've done it. And if you can tell them in advance you think it's the right thing to do, that's best. Absolutely. Now, inevitably, and appropriately, by the way, someone will say, but Bob, I've heard more than one manager say, sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Yeah. That's actually an accurate statement, and I support that. So what I, what I try to do is say, look, it, it's a judgment call. I think whenever it, you possibly can, communicating ahead of time or communicating afterwards, said you engage in an act of intelligent disobedience, is the best way to proceed. But I hesitate to make a blanket statement that says there aren't times when taking the Nike approach and just do it. And if the outcome turns out right, no one's going to know the difference. It's probably okay. And there are managers that have done applied very good judgment as to when to do that. And so I nod my head and I say, yes, that's a story I will share. And it's a story I endorse, and it's a story I can say I've done once in a while myself. But I really don't want to be become the guy with a reputation that just sneaks behind the door or under the desk and does something that no one can see. Right? I'd want to have some justification. If if I if I was challenged later to say why did you do that and not tell anybody, I want to have a very good answer. If I don't have a good answer other than I didn't want to be bothered because someone would question me about it, then I would refrain from doing that. But it's, it's, it's a viable approach to intelligent disobedience, quite honestly. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's super fascinating. I really enjoyed this topic more than, 
than uh, many other leadership studies. Uh, it's uh, it's correct to say that I'm I'm going to take uh, this action regardless ahead of time, um, especially when it's a really sensitive thing and you're really walking that gray area. Uh, and uh, I think, like you said, it's just a matter of, of judgment. That's a judgment call. It is, but I, I do worry about one thing you said, and I don't want to pick on the language. I'm going to do this regardless. Scares me. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I, I the, the the third chapter of of my book is on the ethics of intelligent disobedience, and it was the hardest thing for me to write. Not because I found it difficult to write it and, and share. I wanted to be very complete. I don't want this book or a talk like this that you and I are having that people listen to to be an excuse that people can use for bad behavior. Right. I would never say take that action regardless. You have to have regard for a lot of things, you know, other people, the integrity of your business, your short-term risks, your long-term risks, um, you know, whether you're breaking the law or not, because sometimes if you're not knowledgeable enough, you could be doing that. That should be an so, obvious red flag. <laughs> it, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a line I want to cross. Not a let's, talk about the, let's talk about the, the, the ethics, the, the guidelines of ethics mm -hmm. within an intelligent mm -hmm. disobedience. I sure. think that would be fascinating. Sure. Um, first and foremost, it is to advance the business, not yourself. This is not something that I am suggesting for self-promotion. It's for the benefit of the business. Now, you might get some good positive attention because of the outcome and what it is that you did. I have no problem with that, but that's not the primary reason you do it. The, the, the justification of an act of intelligent disobedience is to advance something for the organization for which you work. Okay. That's first and foremost. Second, um, it's not an excuse to lie. Right. If you if if I have decided to do something in stealth, an act of intelligent disobedience, and not discuss it with my manager, and I'm challenged, I'm going to tell the truth. This is why I did it. This is why I didn't tell you. All right. So it's not an opportunity to lie, or it's not intended to be. Third, it is not an excuse for passive aggressive behavior. I do not want to hear stories of people sitting in a meeting and say, yes, they'll do something, thinking that's a horrible idea, walk out of the meeting room and then not follow what they just agreed to in the meeting room because I think it's dumb. The Intelligent Disobedience Act to take in that case is to challenge that direction in the meeting room or in a subsequent conversation with the leader thereafter and say, boss, maybe this is not the, the appropriate thing, normal thing to do, but I don't agree with this. Here's my truth. And I use that term very consciously. Here's my perception based on my experience. That manager may have other information that you don't know. It allows her or him to put their truth on the table. You then look at that greater sense of truth and can make it the best decision as to how to go forward. I think one of the things that we do, particularly if we're passionate about something, is we make the mistake of thinking our truth is the truth. 
That is very our true. truth is from our experience and our victories and our failures. But if I'm working with a team or I'm working with a manager, there's other dialogue that they're in. There's other conversations they're in. There's information they may not have. And they have a different set of victories and not so victorious moments than I do, right? Determining the best way to go forward um, is best performed by putting the greatest set of truth on the table. That's the truth. And then you make a decision from there. It's about the collective, the, the curative. Uh, You're truth. curating truth in this case. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I, I, it's, it's kind of similar, actually. It just reminded me of how, I, you know, every now and then someone will tell you, don't rely on one new source for all your information. There is bias. We're all human. So gather from multiple sources, collect the common information, and then make a sound assessment on your opinion regarding the topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, without naming names, there are different news sources on this planet which would make you think we're on different planets. <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to just one or the other, it's like, wow, it is really, really different. So, yes. Yes. Unfortunately, the idea of collecting news and making opinions is a lot more work than it used to be as a result. True, true, and then you, uh, even even in teams, it's a it's a lot it's a lot of work because you have to sit and you have to even if you're passionate, like you said, you're you're also passionate to argue your case. So it's hard to like suppress yourself for a moment just to listen to the other perspective, and, and that's that's very energy consuming as well. It is, but I really try to take the approach that says, you know, someone say, you need to, I need help with influencing my manager to make this decision. And I went, I think that's that's making an assumption that your truth is the truth. Because they may have other information and that may not be the good decision. And if had you known that, the statement you just made to me, you wouldn't have said. So take the approach that says, I want to put my truth on the table. I want to make it the greatest and best invitation for the people that I'm working with to put their truths on the table. And then we'll see what we what kind of influence needs yes. to be applied to what kind of decision to make. Yeah, in the sake of, in the sake of a team, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about the good of the team, like you said. And mm -hmm. you, you really have to have the wider perspective of uh, whatever the situation is that they might be yes. handling or dealing yes. with. Yes. Um, yeah, in, in accepting that truth is the core of what we're talking about now with diversity, inclusion, and acceptance, right? I mean, it's one thing to have a numbers game that says, I got this many people of this origin or that origin or this religion or male or female, or whatever the case may be, okay, great, you got the numbers. Do they have the ability to attend, participate, put their truth on the table and have that considered in the greatest degree of truth? That's the power of diversity that's true brought to bear there are many advantages to diversity but that that i mean the multiple perspectives is is un, uncomparable to absolutely absolutely uh, absolutely you know in in the in the um i have a linkedin learning course called leading with intelligent disobedience and and there's a three minute segment on what i call pretend employees those are employees that come to work and have to leave part of themselves home 
It may be the very creative part that comes up with really wild ideas, but in the middle of that wild idea, there's a seed or two that are really fantastic that you can put together in a business, and you have to be patient enough to hear the wild to draw out those seeds. But if you reject the person that happens to communicate that way and say, oh my God, you're just being way out, just, you know, go away. If they're still in your business, they're wearing a mask, they're only half there, they're spending energy not being themselves or suppressing themselves, which means they're not putting their energy into your business and belief into your business and drive into your business and passion into your business. You've got a pretend employee. Can't see it on paper. You may be paying them the same as somebody else, but they're not a full employee of your business. To the greatest degree we can, we need to let people be as authentic as we can. And that's allowing them to put ideas on the table put their thoughts on the table as freely as we possibly can um, to allow them to really be included and take their diversity um, of backgrounds and perspectives and bring it into the table to um, make decisions and, and take advantage of that knowledge and experience. Well, I mean, that, that hit very close to home because I'm a big advocate for hiring people that argue with me in the first interview. Actually, my, my, my marketing uh, manager right sitting right across from me, she's laughing right now because we had a big argument about how to do our digital media uh, on the first time I met her on, on the interview. Uh, but but her perspective was right at the end of the day, and, and that's that's how we're rolling out the uh, the marketing plans that we've been doing. There's there's a fantastic book about Abraham Lincoln in the United States in his cabinet called Team of Rivals. He, he was very big on bringing people together that had different ways of thinking uh, from him and different ways of thinking of each other because he wanted the greatest spectrum of possibilities and thought on the table to make decisions. And, and the book is, is, is about you know, a team of rivals uh, with, with different rivaling, competing ideas. Absolutely. Sorry, I have someone asking a question which I'm not really entirely sure if it's uh, clear here. Uh, Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but uh, not his own facts. And oh no, I'm going to avoid this one. It's too politically. Uh, <laughs> but let me, you know, so let me. I do want to address the not his own fact. I agree. I agree with. Yeah. I, I understand the concept of that comment. I think. But let me just let me just put that in perspective. I may say, God, this project is going to be easy. I've done three of these. Somebody else may say, I can't imagine this project being easy. I've done three of these and two of them were an absolute disaster. Well, did I just get lucky? Or have they discovered something that I didn't discover? And so it would be good. And again, I want the fact of the experiences they viewed it to try to understand it, to put on the table so I can add mine to it, right? Versus just conjecture and opinion uh, so I want to sort of sort through that a little bit, right? But um, I, I don't deny if, if someone can give me an authentic experience that they've had and, and they've reflected on it, I usually want to know about it. That doesn't necessarily mean I have to do exactly what it is they say. That's their truth. And I want to look at the truth, right? 99 people had no problem with this project and one didn't. I'd love to understand why the one didn't 
have a, you know, or, you know, whatever the case may be to, to learn from that. But then we're probably going to go with the 99 other things. But um, in that process, I don't want to deny that outlier from having a voice. I think that's, um, that's really detrimental to not only that employee, but the fact that I've shut that down is going to be noticed by the other employees on my team as well. And, then, you know, I don't want someone going home and say, gee, when, what's too controversial an opinion for me to share with Bob? And now they're wondering whether they should share. I don't want them spending energy wondering whether they should share. Absolutely not. Um, someone was asking, and of course, this is a politically charged question. So feel free not to answer, uh, but I will go ahead and ask it. Someone is asking if Trump Donald Trump can be considered as intelligently disobedient. <laughs> I get that question a lot, especially while I live in Australia. I'm, I'm an American. I was born an American and I'm an, an, both an American and Australian citizen. Um, do you remember we talked about the first rule of intelligent disobedience and that you are engaging in an act of intelligent disobedience for the benefit of the business or the organization as a whole. Now, I may have, you know, conservative or liberal political views and maybe agree with those or not agree with those. I'm separating that for the moment because that, I don't think that's germane to the point I want to make. In my viewpoint, I don't think it was evident that that was always the case, <laughs> that, that he was putting the organization in the United States in front of what appeared to be personal interest. I don't know that for sure. I can't say hand on heart, this is the hard evidence. There you go, bah, 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 because I heard the conversation or I saw a document. So I can't pass judgment on that. Yes. But my belief is makes me question it from the things that I've done, did see. So I, I, as a general, I don't think it was intelligent disobedient um, in many cases. Can't put hand on heart and say that's a fact because I don't know the entire story. And like you said, like you said, there's so many different perspectives that if we wanted to Absolutely. Sure. properly answer that, we would need to know uh, all those a different lot, perspectives. A lot more than I know. Yeah, so yeah. so I so I'm I'm sorry I'm not going to distinctly answer the question, but my leaning <laughs> is kind of that way, that it's yeah. not really in, always intelligent discipline. It didn't appear that way to me. Well, you know, let's uh, shift gears a bit and uh, sure <laughs> avoid the politics for a second. Uh, I wanted to ask also, like. When you, uh, when was the point when you decided that you, uh, or what was the point where intelligent disobedience became integral and a part of your life? So, um, while I wasn't calling it intelligent disobedience then because I hadn't met Chap and his master and learned this whole, you know, perspective that seeing eye dogs and the concept of intelligent disobedience, um, as I said, I worked for IBM for 18 years and, and a couple of years in, I got my first management position. I was sent to IBM management school and, and um, it, this was in the eighties. IBM was really, really big on educating and, and I benefited from that greatly. Um, and new manager education involved a number of different things, including a week 
a very intense week where you had three different manager instructors with three different styles. So this is not right. This is not wrong. You adopt your style, right? And, and so we were getting a sample of three different styles. And one of the guys came in and it was two guys and a gal. Um, but one of the two guys came in to one of his lectures in our little in our session and he had a construction helmet on that was beat to hell <laughs> and dents and scratches i mean this thing looked as if you know he decided to ram buildings with it <laughs> you know it was just horrible and and so it was a notable thing and very unusual to you know this guy's got a suit and tie and this construction helmet on yeah. that was awful looking and he says um if you don't have dents in your helmet, you're not trying to advance our business hard enough. Wow. That was 30 some odd years ago. And I remember every word of that lecture. That is probably I, the he had me, he had me hook, line and sinker with that one. Um, and, and, and I've always tried to take that management approach that says, you know, you have to be reasonable. I mean, I'm not going to run into a building without a helmet. Let me put it that way. Right. Um, nor was he advocating that you do that. Right. And he was ultimately saying, take a risk. I, you know, I'm going to take a risk, but I have protection. <laughs> I have a helmet on. It could be because I've done research. It could be because I've talked to my manager and they're going to back me up because I want to try something new. It could be a number of different things, but, but don't take a risk without your helmet. Right. But, you know, don't try to keep your helmet really clean by just doing little things either. It's not moving the business forward if we do that. Right. Um, so so I sort of, I, it, there might be something inbred in my genes that that meant so much to me when I heard him say that. So there might be a bit of inbreeding or, you know, a gene pool sort of thing that, that led me to embrace that. Um, well, it's but so, it's, it's that so, certainly it's released it as a great thought process for me. It's such a heavy sentence. You know, you can't advance the business without, you know, dents in your helmet. It's uh, a lot of people now lately on like social media that are doing these posts of quotes and so on. And one of them is, you know, you can't reach the top of Everest without getting dirty. <laughs> and that's the same concept. I mean, you, if, if you're all polished and neat and just sitting uh, and you have a clean desk, it suggests that there's not a lot of work being done. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the other thing, and I, we may be going off on a tangent from intelligent disobedience, but I've yes. heard that quote before, and my always corollary is that, yes, and you need Sherpa. You need Sherpas. <laughs> Don't forget you need a team, need a team <laughs> and you need to appreciate them um, yes. to get to where you want to get. So, yeah, but it, both is true. And I said, I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent, but I can't help myself when I hear that quote. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's okay. I mean, that, that, quote, that quote, second time you tell me that, that quote, and every single time I'm just as hit as equally as hard as every single time I hear. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, I wanted to go over just... Uh, and another concept uh, that you had mentioned, um, or a story, let's say, uh, on, on the same YouTube uh, video, was when 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 uh, there was a training being the given, and the top manager said, "Stop the training." Uh, of course. Um, if I'm repeating correctly, I'll let you take over from here. If, if you, uh, I, yeah, I'm. I, I've got a. 
few there's a few stories i'm trying to remember which one you quoted sorry about that like well, well there was one, like one bad review of the training and then there was like 99 good reviews of the training. okay yeah so it's an interesting thing when you when you get feedback and how you treat feedback can be an element of intelligent disobedience, right? And, and it's easy to look at the numbers of 99 things that are positive and one that's not and say, oh, you, know, you can't reach everybody, right? Um, so there's two stories to take away from this. And I don't know if exactly what you're allowing me to go to, Lath, but I think there's two stories I want to share based on that intro for me. The first is this, and, and it, this is really, this is true with intelligent disobedience. There are people that are going to be very comfortable with intelligent disobedience. You know, the guy who I talked to that was my management instructor that had the helmet on, you know, is, is absolutely going to embrace intelligent disobedience. And there's people that are going to be very process-minded and very uncomfortable when you vary from process, right? So you get a lot of feedback when you're not necessarily going on what people will think the straight and narrow and following the rules all the time, right? So I, I you know, and, and someone said this also about making presentations um, in public and getting responses. He said, here's what I want you to understand. He said, let's just pick a number. He said, 2% of the people that review, see your presentations and re review you are going to hate everything you said. Hate it. Could be because the dog died just before they, you know, came to work. Could be just because they've had a bad day. Could be because your voice reminds them of somebody else they don't like, or they just don't think you have the right approach to the topic. Doesn't matter. Two percent are not going to like what you have to say. Two percent are going to think you're God's gift to the topic, and they will follow you around like groupies following a band. They're going to think you're wonderful. They're going to praise you at every opportunity that they get. Here's what you need to understand about those two. Neither one of those is your fault, <laughs> right? The fact that you are horrible, the fact that you're like godlike, you just have to dismiss those, yes. right? Focus on the 96% in the middle. So that's one thing relative to the 99 one. The other is, what's the content of the one? People might have been entertained by what you said, and enjoyed a training or enjoyed the presentation or enjoyed whatever it is that they're evaluating, you're going to get a good, good score. But I read the negative ones very carefully because there may be something I can learn from that. Somebody's perspective, somebody's background, that could be somebody else's truth going back to the, putting truth on the table. And it's like, you know what? No one else noticed this by this, but this person and that person might have been really, really paying attention. And I may have something to learn from that. So the 99 and 1 thing brings up those two thoughts in my mind relative to how you deal with feedback. Um, so it's, is it, you know, was that feedback, that one on the 99, um, and therefore you could stop and make a change? And I'll tell you the story behind this is... Um, you know, is that falling into the 2% of just someone that grumbly and didn't like it? Or did they have something concrete you need to learn in those comments? And um, the, the, the story is, is, is um, 
the intelligent disobedience story is halting a set of education, even though we got an absolutely fantastic rating if you look at the numbers, because they're really, I wanted to listen to that one negative um, because it had a really, really valid point in it. And we needed to turn around um, and restructure the way that we did that training to accommodate it. And it was a very, very good thing as a result. So um, don't always just play the numbers game. Look at the truth yeah. that was put on the table in the comments that you get. You can't undervalue the smaller number. There was great value in the attention that the person put in that put in a negative comment. Feedback's a it's gift. Good. And it may be just someone venting or it may be someone that has something legitimate. And in this case, that's something legitimate. And you really want to read it and pay attention, not let it get you down again. Because the 2% and the 2% Sorry. both aren't your fault. But if there's something in there, pay attention to it. Hello? Are we there? Hello, you're back. <laughs> I can I, I saw and heard you this all the whole time. So uh, okay, so sorry I about I that. Froze. I don't know where that where that failure was, but I think we're back together. Sorry about that. I may have frozen. I actually have a really good question here from someone called Said. He's saying, uh, okay. "How is intelligent disobedience related to our values?" Ah, they are absolutely intertwined with your values. In an earlier conversation and in a different context, Lath, I said. I talked about Google and a electric power distribution, right? What is intelligent disobedience in one environment may not be intelligent disobedience in the other. Values tie into this. Something that's acceptable in one country is going to be unacceptable in another and maybe intelligent disobedience if you do it or maybe just plain disobedience if you do it. So the company's mission company culture, country culture, and the values that come about from that are all intertwined as to whether something in your context may be intelligent disobedience or not. And in a past, which is why I say I'm not an expert on and I can't tell when or any given instance is, a, is an act of intelligent disobedience. I say, well, tell me more. Tell me the story. Give me the background. What research did you do um, You know, before, before you, or what knowledge did you bring to bear before you took took this action and determined it was intelligent disobedience um, or not. So it's a very um, situational concept. Right. That is and hopefully fantastic. that answers Said's question. Hopefully. <laughs> Anyways, I think that, that, that it's been uh, lovely having you on here. And um, if you want to go ahead and uh, add anything else, uh, now would be a good time. Sure. Look, I again, I am the collector and sharer of stories of intelligent disobedience. Uh, so Intelligent Disobedience, The Difference Between Good and Great Leaders is my book. Uh, intelligent Disobedience, one long word, dot com is a website where and, and then you can, you know, there's a YouTube channel for called Intelligent Disobedience and um, LinkedIn Learning. Uh, is there's a course on intelligent disobedience I mentioned along with 20 other courses that I have in LinkedIn learning on project management and other leadership and, and business building concepts and consulting. Um, and Bob, 
my first name at intelligentdisobedience.com is my email. I always love people reaching out, asking questions. If there's something that I said that you liked or didn't like or whatever, um, or you're trying to apply this in a scenario, want to have a bit of a chat. Uh, I'm more than I'm more than uh, happy to uh, to do that. In fact, I'm always thrilled when I can help people navigate this concept because if, when you put it into place and it works, the outcomes that you get are fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll go ahead and share uh, the link uh, for uh, your book as well uh, in the comment section. And of course, um, thank you so much for being on Leaders Talk with us. My and, pleasure. Uh, oh, and one more thing. I think there's only two Bob McGannons on uh, LinkedIn Learning or on LinkedIn. If you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, the guy with the white hair, the, the Bob McGannon with the white hair is me. <laughs> So you can do right. reach out to me that way as well. Right. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, we, you know, anything that we missed in the comments, we can go ahead and answer uh, over text. Absolutely. Thank you so much once again for having me on, Leith. I appreciate it. And, and I hope the, the audience enjoyed it. And again, any comments or questions, I'm more than happy to uh, respond. Definitely. Thank you so much. All Have right. a great Good day. Enough. Thanks. You too. Take care, everybody. Um... Uh...